Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 70, the book of Matthew, chapter 21, continued. Well, as we opened up Matthew chapter 21 last week, we read about what Christianity calls the triumphal entry. And in this short but revealing action in Yeshua's life and, and, and mission, He enters Jerusalem riding upon a donkey accompanied with a donkey's foal. Now, this is intentionally done in order to fulfill uh, the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And in His approach, up the road that leads across the Mount of Olives to the eastern gate of Jerusalem, Christ encounters two distinct and separate groups of people, those inside the walls of Jerusalem and those lining the roads on the outside. Outside are mostly the people who have been following Him as He trekked from the Galilee to the Holy City. Thus a good deal, if not the majority, of that group consists of Galileans. Inside the city are the residents of Jerusalem, meaning they are Judeans, Judea being the Roman name for the province in which Jerusalem is located. And although these are all Hebrews, they're Gal Galileans and, and Judeans are somewhat like oil and water. They don't mix very well. And thus we see two entirely different reactions to Jesus' dramatic arrival for the, for the Passover festival where He even declares Himself to be the King. None of the people, none of the people view Him as their Messiah. See, to the majority, he is the one who embodies the spirit of Solomon, the son of David. But yet he's greater than Solomon. Now the Galileans and the other Jews in the crowd, outside the gates, well, they adore Christ. They praise Him because of His miracle healings, His compassion, His, his wisdom teachings. They lay their garments, their outer garments, that is, their cloaks that serve both as, as jackets and blankets, on the road for Him to ride over. See, this act is a traditional symbolic display of allegiance. The Judeans inside the city are wary of Yeshua. They consider Him an annoyance, if not a threat. The Galileans are proud of Yeshua because he, too, is a Galilean, one of them. The Judeans consider themselves to be sophisticated, the pious Jews. Well, they look down on him. He's an outsider. They also look at that same way as the Galileans. They see them as little more than crude country bumpkins. Unfortunately, they're obligated to tolerate them three times a year for the ordained, God-ordained pilgrimage festivals to the temple. Well, let's continue now, as the next thing we're going to read about Jesus doing is going to the temple and creating a ruckus. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start reading at verse 10. Matthew 21, starting at verse 10, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Matthew 21, starting at verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds answered, This is Yeshua, the prophet from Nazareth, from Nazareth, in the Galil. Yeshua entered the temple grounds, and he drove out those who were doing business there, both the merchants and their customers. He upset the desks of the money changers, knocked over the benches of those who were selling pigeons. He said to them, It has been written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. Blind and lame people came up to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the head Kohanim, the head priest, and the Torah teacher saw the wonderful things he was doing, and the children crying out in the temple, Please deliver us to the son of David. They were furious. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Yeshua replied, Of course. Haven't you ever read from the mouths of children and infants you have prepared praise for yourself? And with that, he left them, went outside the city to Bethania, Bethany, where he spent the night. Well, Mark has the same story. See, but of course, because Matthew's intended audience is Jews, while Mark's is Gentiles, the wording and the tone in Mark's is somewhat different. So when Mark chapter 11, verses 5, uh, rather 15 through 18, we read, On reaching Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were carrying on business there, both the merchants and their customers. He also knocked over the desks of the money changers, upset the benches of the pigeon dealers, refused to let anyone carry merchandise through the temple courts. Then, as he taught them, he said, Isn't it written in the Tanakh? My house will be called a house of prayer for all the goyim, for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The head priest and the Torah teachers heard what he said and tried to find a way to do away with him. They were afraid of him because the crowds were utterly taken by his teaching. See, there's another noticeable difference between Matthew's and Mark's gospel account. In Matthew's, Jesus rides into the city. He immediately goes to the temple to confront the business operators there. In Mark, after entering the city, Christ goes, uh, goes to the temple, but then he just looks around and goes to Bethany to spend the night. The next day, he starts to walk back towards Jerusalem. He curses a fig tree along the way. And only afterward, he returns to the temple to express his extreme displeasure with what's going on there. Now, clearly, whomever these two gospel writers interviewed to get their information had different memories about the goings-on on the first couple of days Yeshua was in Jerusalem. We need to not be terribly concerned about every event sequence because it really plays no role in the meaning or the actions that Yeshua took. See, these Gospels were written more than three decades after the fact. So one is pretty apt to get such details from people that, that just they all remember things a little differently. Now notice in verse 11 that the people from the Galilee speak of Yeshua as a prophet. A prophet. It's important to remember that by the early part of the first century, it was believed that divine prophecy had pretty well come to a close. The generally held belief was that Malachi was probably the last of a class of people called prophets in the Bible, in their holy book. Chosen men that brought God's heaven-sourced prophecies to earth. So now the term prophets carried a, a different meaning, actually two meanings in fact. The first kind were seers of the future, not so much in the divine sense, rather more like modern age fortune tellers. And the second kind were respected teachers and, and interpreters of God's written word. God's written word for Jesus and all other Jews was the Tanakh. What is most widely known to us is the Old Testament. Yet at the same time, because his reputation preceded him, Yeshua was considered as more than a run-of-the-mill Torah interpreter and teacher. He was quite special. In fact, there is no doubt that at least some of the crowds hoped that Christ was the prophet like me that Moses said would someday appear. Well, as Yeshua enters the temple, 
it would have been in the outer courts, he encounters this, the usual dizzying array of merchants and business people along with their customers. He goes into a rage. He begins to upset their tables, knock over the benches to display what we must take as genuine personal anger, but also as intentional symbolism of God's divine wrath that is coming. But what exactly was he furious about? What made him so mad? The reality was that the money changers and the business people provided a valuable and legitimate service. See, it revolved around the sacrificial system that required animals for the burnt offerings. The people coming, even from the Galilee, which was relatively close by, didn't usually bring their animals with them to Jerusalem. Especially those from farther away could not bring their best animals with them from a practical aspect. The odds that the animals would even survive the trip weren't great. And the hassle of transporting them wasn't worth it. So the scores of thousands of Jewish pilgrims purchased their sacrificial animals from temple-approved suppliers rather than bringing them with them. Therefore, Yeshua's issue, his issue was not with the temple itself as a divinely ordained institution, but rather it has to do with the corruption of the men running it. Instead of serving God's people in good faith, they used it as a for-profit enterprise. In fact, very probably, the reason that Yeshua made a point to do what He did in knocking things over was to visibly fulfill the prophecy of the Psalms of Solomon, Psalm 17, verse 30, or perhaps of Zechariah 14, 21. Now, don't look in your Bibles to find the book of Psalms to find what I just spoke of. Okay, The Psalms of Solomon are not contained in your Bibles. They were created in the first or second centuries BC and were widely known and used in Yeshua's era. There we read, and He will purge Jerusalem and make it holy as it was even from the beginning. Zechariah, well, he, contained, he says something similar in Zechariah 14.21. Yes, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be consecrated to Adonai Sefaot. Everyone who offers sacrifices will come, take them, and use them to stew the meat. And when that day comes, there will no longer be merchants in the house of Adonai Sefaot. See, it's interesting that in this verse from Zechariah, the Hebrew word that is most accurately translated as merchant is literally Canaanite. But see, Canaanite, the term Canaanite, had become a derogatory term used to mean corrupt people. And merchants, as a class of people, were often put in league with tax collectors, so they were seen as dishonest. And it's terribly important that we recognize that nearly everything we read about Jesus doing as He enters Jerusalem right on through the time of His death and His resurrection were prophesied centuries earlier. He orchestrated the fulfillment of many of them, just as He had in doing His amazing miracles of healing, so that He could provide firm evidence that He was the One the ancient prophets were speaking about. Now, for those Jews who, whose hearts and their eyes were open, they would ex in, in time, they would accept His acted-out fulfillments as proof that He was indeed Israel's divine Messiah. But for the vast bulk of the Jews, 
Well, they were blind to it. Because, see, they had been led astray. They had been taught wrongly for generations by the Jewish religious leadership. And so in their darkened eyes, he did not fulfill the very different expectations of the Messiah that their synagogue and temple leaders had created as tradition. And then they insisted upon it. Now the thought is often put forward that Jesus' actions were intended to cleanse the temple. You'll see pictures in Bibles and all throughout. It says, Jesus cleansing the temple to make it ritually pure. Well, there's, I see no evidence of that at all. Christ didn't do what he did to repair or restore anything. What he did was as a personal protest and as a divine symbol, then he just moved on. Jesus goes on to justify his actions that no doubt riled pretty much everybody that witnessed them by saying, <clears throat> it is written that my house will be called a house of prayer. And when he says, it is written, he of course is meaning written in the Tanakh. Isaiah 56, 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now notice, when we read about what Christ said, Matthew omits the for all peoples part of the prophecy. But Mark includes it. See, it's just another case example of Matthew writing his gospel for a Jewish audience and Mark for a Gentile audience. Matthew had little interest in including the thought of Gentiles being welcomed into the temple of Jerusalem. But of course, Mark wanted to highlight it. Further, Yeshua takes a short quote from Jeremiah 7 when he calls the robust commerce going on in the temple courts a den of robbers. Now verse 14 changes course. He's still in the temple. However, Yeshua resumes his miracle healing ministry, if only briefly. Likely, his, he has moved to a different temple court now, probably into the court of the Gentiles. See, his actions here are also provocative, but in another way. This is the one and only time we're going to hear of him healing illnesses in Jerusalem. That he performs these miracles within the temple grounds would have brought the Sadducees and Pharisees much concern. This action also needs to alert us to him continuing to display his Spirit of Solomon attribute. We can be nearly certain that he was in the court of the Gentiles at this point because we're told that the blind and the lame came up to him. See, the blind and the lame were excluded from the temple grounds. But since the court of the Gentiles was reserved for, for foreigners and for non-God worshipers, just gawkers, thus making the area ritually unclean, well then, these Jewish, blind and crippled, they were also permitted to go there. Leviticus 21, 17-21, Tell Aharon, Aaron, None of your descendants who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one with a defect may approach. No one blind, lame, with a mutilated face or a limb too long, a broken foot or a broken arm, a hunched back, stunted growth, a cataract in his eye, festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No one descended from Aaron the Cohen, the priest, 
who has such a defect may approach to present the offerings for Adonai made by fire. He has a defect and is not to approach to offer the bread of his God. But notice how the scripture passage was no doubt used as the basis to prohibit the blind and the lame from entering the holy precincts of the temple. However, also notice that this command was only aimed at the priesthood. It was only about the descendants of Aaron. And then like so much else within the first century Hebrew faith, a, do a doctrine, a man-made doctrine, had been taken out of its intended biblical context and wrongly applied. It was a man-made tradition that the blind and the lame Jewish laymen were excluded from the temple grounds. It wasn't an ordinance of God. In fact, this cruel tradition is quoted in the Dead Sea Scrolls as existing at this time. And it even extended to the lame and the blind being excluded from Jewish religious congregations in general. And so almost certainly from the synagogues and from banquets. You see, this helps us to understand how terrible and unjust life was for the crippled and the blind. And it's why Jesus was always moved to heal them. And I also want to comment on a regular claim from Christian Bible commentators that Jesus going to the court of the Gentiles demonstrates he was in a process of removing God's blessing from the Jews and transferring it to the Gentile church. This, of course, is another bogus claim that ignores what proceeded to actually occur there. The idea that Gentiles, Gentiles came to Jerusalem at Passover so that Jesus could heal them approaches the absurd. The reason Yeshua went to exactly where he did in the temple area was specifically to heal the blind and the lame Jews who could appear nowhere else than on the court of the Gentiles. And the reaction to all this commotion of, and of Yeshua going against tradition and, and even becoming involved in healing at the temple, an area jealously guarded and controlled by the high priest, well, this was the outcome was predictable. Verse 15 says, But when the high priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things he was doing, the point here is the two spheres of Jewish religious authority present were actually rivals. The temple and the synagogue were rivals. One had little to no control over the other. They were fully separate institutions. Here, however, they joined forces as the leadership of both spheres were upset with Christ. Then we read that the Children were also shouting, Hosanna, at Yeshua. Now this really isn't surprising. Since Jewish children began learning to memorize and recite the Hallel, from which comes the term Hosanna, at a very early age. And as I've shown you, children had a limited role around adults. It almost always involved labor, such as working in the field. And today we can be thrilled if Young children sit in a believer's congregation meeting and join in with the adults in praise and worship, hearing God's word, even in asking questions. It wasn't quite like that in the first century in Jewish society. Adult women were excluded from much religious activity. And children were even lower on the religious totem pole. That is, children, in the view of these grumbling religious authorities, shouldn't have been involved certainly not shouting anything at all. So these authorities told Yeshua exactly how they felt about it. In response, Yeshua paraphrases Scripture. He sort of conflates two verses. In Psalms 8, verses 2 and 3, Adonai our Lord, how glorious is your name throughout the earth, that in 
fame of your majesty spreads even above the heavens. From the mouths of babes and infants at the breast, you establish strength because of your foes, in order that you might silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, understand, it was the Jewish custom that when quoting a short scripture passage, that it was the way one referred to the entire passage. Today, see, if we want to refer to a passage in a Bible book, we'll give a chapter and a verse number or a range of numbers. No such protocol existed at that time. So the only way to communicate what you intended was to just say a brief part of a passage and then expect the other party to know the remainder of it. Point being, the priests and the scribes full well knew the part that Jesus didn't say. The part that says who this passage was meant for, the enemy and the avenger. They got it. Christ meant them. He wasn't there to make friends. Well, this ends this part of the Jerusalem temple scene. Christ now heads for the Mount of Olives and the town of Bethany. It's about a two-mile walk. Let's read some more of Matthew 21. Open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start reading at verse 18 and go through 27. The next morning on his way back to the city, he felt hungry. And spotting a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and he found nothing on it except leaves. So he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree dried up. The Talmudim, the disciples saw this and they were amazed. How did the fig tree dry up so quickly, they asked. And Yeshua answered them, Yes, I tell you, if you have trust and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, it'll be done. In other words, you will receive everything you ask for in prayer, no matter what it is, provided you have trust. Well, he went into the temple area, and as he was teaching, the head priest and the elders of the people approached him and demanded, what semacha do you have, there was what authority, what do you, uh, do you have that authorizes you to do these things? And who gave you this samacha? And Yeshua answered, I too will ask you a question. And if you answer it, then I'll tell you by what samacha I do these things. The immersion of Yochanan, the immersion of John, John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or from a human source? Well, they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven... He will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from a human source, well, we're afraid of the people, for they all regard Yochanan as a prophet. So they answered Yeshua, we don't know. And he replied, then I won't tell you by what Semachai I do these things. Now, this famous story of Yeshua cursing the fig tree. Matthew omits saying that it was not the season for figs, something that actually Mark includes. Why? Perhaps because Jews in the Holy Land know when it's fig season in Israel, but Gentiles may not. See, a few Bible commentators have noted the story tends to upset some Christians because Jesus is cursing a fig tree that doesn't seem to have done anything wrong. Nor is it some kind of an aberration. Let's set the scene. Okay, Just picture, he's on the road back to Jerusalem from Bethany. So this means he's standing on the Mount of Olives. Next to the road, he spots a fig tree that has no fruit, only leaves. 
And considering this would have been the late March, early April time frame, it wasn't time for figs to appear and then ripen, just as Mark reports it, because figs are a summer and a fall season fruit in Israel. Mysteriously, Christ walks up to that tree, seems angry that there's no figs on it, so he curses it and immediately it withers and dies. Now the disciples are stunned because they, like most believers in all eras, can't understand why Jesus would do this illogical thing, unless he was just in a bad mood. So they ask him why the fig tree died. Now surprisingly, he doesn't really answer their question. Rather, <laughs> he tells them how they can have the ability to do the same thing. Just going to wander around and wither up all the fig trees they want. He says if they will trust, if they will trust and not doubt, then they can not only decimate fig trees, but with just a word, they can throw the mountain into the sea. Now we're going to get to the final part of his response shortly. First of all, I'm going to say something that I hope has you all scurrying to your New Testaments after the service to fact check me. Nowhere in the Gospels does Christ directly say to trust in Him. He certainly says to mimic Him, to follow Him. But instructing people to trust in Him doesn't occur in the Gospel accounts. I'm not saying it doesn't occur elsewhere, I'm saying not in the Gospel accounts. Rather, all direct encouragement to trust someone points to Yeshua's heavenly Father. Although, since Yeshua's divine is divine, a certain trust in Him can also be derived from it, no doubt. Second of all, Christ does not say that with enough trust that the disciples can throw a mountain into the sea. He says, this mountain. This mountain. What mountain were they standing on? The Mount of Olives. Third, it is commonly said in Bible commentaries that the fig tree must be symbolic of something. That is, Yeshua wasn't just in a bad mood and needed to curse something to let out his emotions. The symbol that is usually suggested is that the fig tree represents Israel. Well, I have my doubts about that in this instance. See, Israel is nearly always symbolized by what kind of a tree? The olive tree. And if not an olive tree, Israel's other common symbol is a vineyard. There do seem to be a couple of odd instances in which the fig is mentioned alongside Israel. Now, fourth, it's also common among Bible commentators, very good ones, I might add, to equate Israel with Jerusalem. That is, that they are very nearly synonyms, and they usually mean the same thing when spoken of in the Bible, especially prophetically. I disagree with that. Jerusalem is Israel's national and spiritual capital. It represents both governmental and religious leadership. Leadership. Jerusalem is quite simply the center of the world. Israel as a whole is not. So now let's put this together. Yeshua is standing on the Mount of Olives. that received its name for a pretty good reason. It was just positively crammed with olive trees. A fig tree was, was an outlier. It's not that it didn't belong, it's only that its character was quite different from that of olive trees. So it's the context and setting of the story that 
you see, that leads us to its meaning. Yeshua had just received the coldest of welcomes inside the city gates of Jerusalem by the city's residents. The religious leadership of both the temple and the synagogue were now gunning for him and openly displayed their disdain against him. The Romans, well, they were deeply suspicious of him. He has also just expressed his own disdain for what had become the Temple Inc., the Temple Incorporated. It was no longer a sanctified place for worship. It had become a shopping mall for the benefit of the priesthood's bank accounts. It points this, the fig tree was not symbolic of Israel in general. It was of Jerusalem in particular. It would be Jerusalem's residents and religious leadership and government that would condemn the innocent Yeshua to die a horrible death on a Roman death state, not Israel. You with me? Just as his attack on the temple merchants and money changers was symbolic of God's anger and wrath on the corruption done by the priesthood to this most holy place, so was Yeshua's attack on a barren fig tree symbolic of a spiritually fruitless Jerusalem. The curse was that it wither and die, and in but 40 years, Jerusalem and the temple would also wither and die destroyed by an angry and vengeful Roman emperor. So the curse of the fig tree was symbolic, but it was also a veiled prophecy of God's judgment on the city, on its residents, and on the national and spiritual leadership, on the other hand. We do read in the prophets of judgment against Israel as a whole and against Jerusalem separately specifically, and each are symbolized differently. Joel verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of Adonai that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, you leaders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in your ancestors' days? Tell your children about it. Have them tell it to theirs. Have them tell the next generation. What the cutter worms left, the locusts ate. What the locusts left, the grasshoppers ate. What the grasshoppers left, the shearer worms ate. Wake up, drunkards, and weep. Wail all you who drink wine, because the juice of the grape will be withheld from your mouth. For a mighty and numberless nation has invaded my land. His teeth are lion's teeth. His fangs are those of a lioness. He has reduced my vines to waste, my fig trees to splinters. He plucked them bare, stripped their bark, and left their branches white. Now notice how the vines, the vineyards, and the fig trees are both punished. Notice that the verse that verse 2 separates the leadership from everyone else, even though both groups will be decimated. Hear this, you leaders, it says. Listen, all who live in the land. Vines represent Israel at large. Figs, the leadership of Israel that resides in Jerusalem. So I think the connections I'm suggesting are justifiable, therefore they're correct. Now as for throwing this mountain, the Mount of Olives, into the sea by means of sufficient trust, I, I'm not sure I can provide a really good answer for this one. Yet I think the vein in which we have to consider this is as an end times prophetic one. Let's read Zechariah who next to Isaiah is clearly Jesus' go-to prophet. And I think this might help us to assemble the pieces of this story. 
We're going to look at Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 11. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 11. Look, a day is coming for Adonai, when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the houses will be rifled, the women will be raped, half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half, from east to west, to make a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north, half towards the south. You will flee to the valley in the mountains, for the valley in the mountains will reach to Atzel. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of uh, Uzziah, king of Judah, then added I, my God, will come to you with all the holy ones. On that day there will be neither bright light nor thick darkness, and one day known to Adonai will be neither day nor night, although by evening there will be light. On that day fresh water will flow out from Jerusalem, half towards the eastern sea, half towards the western sea, both summer and winter, then Adonai will be king over the whole world. On that day Adonai will be the only one, and his name will be the only name. All the land will be made like the Erevah, from Geba to Ramon in the Negev. Jerusalem will be raised up and inhabited where she is, from Benjamin's gate to the place where the earlier gate stood, and on to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live there, the curse will be broken, and Jerusalem will live in safety. So the Mount of Olives is prophesied to suffer a destructive calamity. It's going to be split apart by a giant earthquake, such that fresh water will well up from deep underground and huge volume, and it's going to flow through the now divided mountain in two directions, each direction ending up at a sea. The formerly decimated Jerusalem and its violated residents, all at the judgment of God, will be rebuilt and restored. Why? Because Zechariah says the divine curse upon it will finally be lifted. I think we can connect Yeshua cursing the symbol of Jerusalem, the fig tree, with the curse that first destroys Jerusalem in the Mount of Olives, but then it gets lifted in the end times. Verse 22 concludes this story of the, of the cursed fig tree with, in other words, you will receive everything you ask for in prayer, no matter what it is, provided you have trust. Wow, that's quite a promise. How are we to take this? You know, some branches of evangelical Christianity embrace this promise by a doctrine that some call name it and claim it. That is quite literally, if you truly trust God and you ask for something in prayer, it will be granted you no matter what it might be. This notion is also the basis for the so-called prosperity doctrine that's all the rage in some quarters, corners of Western Christianity. It follows then that Jesus has obligated His Father to do this. Fellow believers, we know from personal experience that this is a pretty suspect meaning. Because not even when Yeshua in His darkest hour asked His Father to take this cup of suffering from Him, as He was but hours from the cross, it didn't happen. Rather, true trust in the Father makes our prayers to include the notion that despite what we want, 
despite what we need, it's the Father's will that we should want even more. Matthew 26, 39. Going on a little farther, he fell on his face praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. See, while Yeshua didn't include that same qualifier <laughs> in what he told his disciples in the fig tree incident, in his mind it must have gone without saying. And that is how we must understand it and how we must always approach our God. Your will, Father, not mine. No matter the situation. Verse 23 has Jesus now going back to the temple. This time he's more subdued, and instead of, of attacking, he's teaching. This very likely means he's now moved to Solomon's portico, because that's the traditional place in the temple area where Jewish religious leaders gather their students. Therefore, some temple and synagogue authorities would naturally be there, and this time was no exception. So up they marched to Yeshua and asked him, by what authority, what semacha, what authority does he teach? I want to give you an illustration that although it's imperfect, is close enough to get the idea of what's going on here. Let's say you're on a college campus, and someone walks into the library and begins to instruct the students in English literature. It would be expected that one of the college professors, perhaps an administrator, might come up and ask, by whose authority is this person teaching? This would mean two things. What are your credentials? And who gave you permission? Thus, if you don't have the credentials, well, second point's moot. Same thing with Jesus. In modern English, we might say, that the religious authorities are asking for Yeshua's credentials to teach on matters of God, something they consider themselves to be the exclusive experts. Mark's and Luke's Gospels are so nearly identical to Matthew's in this story that they must have all taken their cue from the same source, so there's no need to read all of them. And as is so typical for Jesus, he answers their question with a question of his own. And he invokes the baptism of John the Baptist, and he challenges the religious leaders to tell him whether John's baptism authority was from God or was it from other human beings. In other words, Yeshua says, before I give you my credentials, Let's talk about Yochanan the Immerser's credentials for a minute. So essentially, Yeshua is saying he got his credentials to teach by being baptized by John the Baptist. Okay? Another way to say it is, Jesus says he was ordained by John. So, since everyone seems to be acutely aware of John baptizing Yeshua, then the real question that demands an answer is, were John's credentials up to snuff so that when he baptized Jesus, it carried weight? In the college education world, the term is accreditation. A non-accredited school going to confer any kind of degree on anyone they want to, but it carries no weight. Outside that school's grounds, it's a rather meaningless piece of paper. So the question the religious leaders must answer then is if John was accredited or not. And if he was, was it by the accreditation of heaven or was it by a committee of men? Now, the religious leaders know they've been had. Because there's really only two ways they can answer it. 
If they say John's accreditation is from heaven, well, then so is Yeshua's. And if Yeshua's has heaven's validation, then they are forced into believing what he teaches or be accused of refusing to submit to the word of God. On the other hand, if they say that John's was essentially accreditation by a non-accredited human committee, the people will be roused to anger because they so revere John as a true prophet. And Jerusalem was always on the edge during these highly emotional feast days. And it didn't take too much to spark a riot for which the religious leadership would have been blamed. So they took the easy way out. They said, they don't know the answer to Christ's question. Christ said, fine, then I won't tell you the source of my accreditation. I think we must notice that despite the obvious tension that we have read about in earlier chapters between John the Baptist and Yeshua, and between Yeshua, between rather between the Baptist's disciples and Christ's, yet blood is thicker than water. These two men were, after all, cousins. Yet what matters more, no doubt, is that Yeshua recognizes the pivotal role of Elijah played by John in acting out a prophetic fulfillment. This divine office that John held was not dependent upon him being a perfect man, nor in having some deep insight into all that Yeshua was and all he stood for. In fact, the New Testament evidence is that John really didn't fully understand the scope of Yeshua's ministry and even disagreed with him on some theological points. Rather, John answered his call from God, a call that would cost him his life. John said yes to God. And that perhaps sums up what the Lord seeks from all workers for him. A person who trusts him responds with yes when the Lord presents an opportunity to obey and serve him. We'll continue with chapter 21 as we encounter yet another parable next time.